The North American Society for Oceanic History was created by maritime scholars who met in 1971 at the University of Maine. They recognized that in North America there was no forum for maritime history or a society devoted to the study and promotion of maritime history. The aim of the original group of organizers was to create a diverse organization based initially on Canadian and American membership, which would gain the interest of others. Now there are members worldwide. And it is this diversity of membership that continues to make NASO a truly unique organization. 2020 marked the first year in recent memory that NASO was unable to meet, and therefore we bring historians, archaeologists, and students who are scheduled to present. Welcome to the North American Society for Oceanic History video and podcast. I am your host, Sal Mercagliano. The goal of the NASO video podcast is to bring some of the best historians, professionals, and up-and-comers in the field of maritime history. Today, we're going halfway around the world to Kerala, India, and being joined by Minu Rabaka, one of those up-and-comers in the field. She's a first-year PhD student at Sri Sankarachata University of Sanskrit and holds a MPhil and a master's in history. The paper that she'll discuss is, quote, in between Europe and Southeast Asia, Dutch treaty-making politics in Chochin, 1662 to 1718, unquote. This is a paper she was going to present at the NASO conference in Pensacola, but it got canceled. So one of the reasons we're doing this is just because of students like her so that we can present her paper and get it out to everybody. Welcome, you know, to NASO. Well, thank you. Thank you very much, Professor Sal. It's a I, difficult to pronounce your name, but so I thought of, uh, you know, addressing you as Sal. Sal is fine. It's a, I make my students uh, call me Sal, too. It's the toughest thing they have to do is get my name right. Well, we appreciate you coming all the way. I've, so far, we've recorded people who have been in Alabama and Maine, and now we're halfway around the world. Yeah. I have actually watched it on YouTube. I have seen it. Yeah. Well, good. Well, we're, we're happy to have you with us. And one of the things that we wanted to do with this podcast and this video is even though we're called the North American Society for Oceanic History, that's where most of our members are from. But we cover history around the world. And your presentation is, is perfect for that because one of the things we really want to do is showcase history from everywhere. And I can't think of a better one than right there in India with the interaction between India and the Dutch. So I'm going to turn it over to you. I'm going to let you do your presentation you were scheduled to do. And then afterwards, we'll have a little bit of a question and answer period. Yeah, well, so, uh, so before going to the major details of my paper, uh, I want to thank North American Society for Oceanic History and its coordinators for your, for your hard work to make this happen even during the time of this pandemic. And anyway, I'm glad that even I'm a part of this. We're actually contacting through email for the last few few days. But I really wish if we could sit together in the physical space and, and share our ideas. But you know, I'm super cool. And I'm, I'm really grateful that we can actually share our ideas even through these platforms. Well, thanks to technology for this. Uh, so I think I can move to my presentation. So uh, the paper that I'm discussing today is about the Dutch treaty making politics from 1662 to 1718 uh, and in, uh, in Cochin and Southeast Asia. But you know the study will particularly locate Cochin, which is an entrepot, which is actually situated in the southwest coast of India. You know, that's present-day Kerala. Uh, so before that, I will share why I'm so much interested in the Dutch money was in Malabar and Cochin, even though the place Cochin was, you know, colonized by three European countries like Portuguese established by India and followed by Dutch and 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 finally British uh, British in 1795 because you know there is a historical lacuna in the Dutch history of Cochin and Malabar during the long 17th and 18th century 
Well, nothing much has been written so far about the Dutch history of Cochin and Malabar and even about India. But your paradox is that the British and Portuguese and bit of French history has been enormously being taught in the Indian universities. But the Dutch history of India, especially Cochin, is still a lacuna. No, nothing much has been come out so far about the Dutch history of Cochin except the Hugo Case Jacob Hugo Case Jacob's uh, book Rajas of Cochin. But you know the Portuguese period has been you know enormously studied by the researchers like uh, Pius Melik and Bethel and Professor Case Matthew and many more. But you know the Dutch history is mostly overlooked. When there is a saying that you know Dutch and the Danes were also there. I still remember when I heard this uh, this particular saying when Anjana Singh told it in uh, one of her uh, presentation in 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 Mumbai University. It's it's in YouTube. I have heard it from the YouTube. Uh, you know, but there are lacks of records, archival sources, and and then archival records like you know in the form of uh, uh, diaries and memoirs and and letters and maps in India cases like Hagar case in the Madras case and Cochin case regarding the Dutch money was in Malabar and Cochin and India. But it's almost untouched, you know. It's almost untouched. These records are in the old Dutch language, making the Indian historians very difficult to read this the sources and this is the factor that made me to think of uh, dutch history or, or made me to uh, you know choose dutch history when i had to choose a theme for my info research so i thought that a small study or an interrogation of dutch treaties with the rulers of local rulers can with the local rulers can at least bridge the research gap of course during the early modern period that means during 17th and 18th century during the dutch period the dutch dominate or you know dominated this period uh, I thought that the study of this treatise can at least, uh, you know, bridge the gap, and and uh, because you know the Dutchies in their company, they uh, they accomplished most of the goals in their possession through the frequent series of treaties that they have concluded with the native rulers and merchants in Cochin and India, and many of their possession in Cochin itself, they had actually concluded more than more than hundred treaties. So I was thinking that you you know the, through this study I can at least bridge the research gap of Cochin and I can get to know more about the political and economic structure of Cochin during the 16th and 17th century, which is almost like a histor uh, historical lacuna. So this is the factor that that uh, I have uh, taken this particular period in Dutch history of uh, Cochin. So I think we can move to the PowerPoint, you know. Uh, so before going to the major data set and uh, just give a brief introduction about Cochin for those who are not much acquainted about Indian cities and its cultural spaces. Now see the first slide, I mean the second slide, the first map, uh, this one. You know, this is actually a Dutch map of Malabar from the 18th century. It's clear. Can you see Kannur here? You know, just below Kannur is Cochin. It's actually located between Kannur and Kilon. And so almost like a, you know, coastal area. This is the geography of Malabar that's today's Kerala. It's almost like a coastal area, you know. And, you know, if I'm talking about the Cochin port, you know, Cochin, you know, it has a port. It's actually like a port city. And one of the specialities that it has a natural harbor. You know, the Europeans starting from the Portuguese and followed by the Dutch, they had a good role in building Cochin to a maritime center. You know, the emergence of this port, uh, Cochin, Cochin from a sleepy village to an ultra port, was actually, you know, it's partly a European action because, you know, it had a trade links with the West Coast to Diu, to Chow, to Surat, and then Eastern links to 
uh, eastern coast to malacca then coromandel manila and mecca and to the port of bengal it had a very prominent position in the vast oceanic space of indian ocean and you know later cochin emerged as a vital link in the trade between malacca and lisbon and it was replaced calicut in the existing port hierarchy in malabar during the early modern period so the growth of port along with pressures and fortunes from the indian ocean brought changes to the political and economic setting of cochin that shaped it to a maritime state uh, next slide please third slide well this is actually very detailed very wonderful 17th century map that shows the waterways and storehouses and hinterlands and ports and forts and, and and every other minuscule details of cochin in the 17th century you know even the depth of the seas indicated in the map it's very clear it's actually written over in numbers you can see that you know this might be for the safe anchorage of ships so from this map itself is understandable that cochin is almost like an outlet to sea with extensive backwater system in the behind and you know this backwater system it strengthened uh, the communication with the rich hinterlands that made uh, the trade in the indian ocean possible so talking about the port of cochin you know actually the port emerged in the end of 1300s no in the middle of 1300s you know it was in 1341 and immediately after the emergence of this port there was flourishing trade between the europeans and arabs and jews and gujaratis and, and this 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 flourishing trade made this place a commercial hub in the southwest coast of india where there was people from different parts of the world spoke different languages and and they possessed different culture and this made you know dramatical changes in political and economic and social spheres of cochin yeah you know this uh, slide you know this actually shows the multicultural and multilingualistic and multiethnic and multi religious cochin but still there resides more than 30 communities like kungnis and jews and christians and or hindus and muslims and then french english and portuguese and many more this still is actually go, uh, this list is actually going on but still has buildings and churches made by you know dutch and english and portuguese and french and you see the slide these three buildings you know these three standing buildings saint francis church this was actually built by portuguese and the cochin club was built by english and the david hall was built by you know, dutch these three buildings actually you know, situated on the same street this is actually a testimony to the argument of cochin's multiculturalism so it's in the same street and it can be even said that it's one of the few cities in there where the pre colonial traditions of cultural pluralism refuses to die and you know it's a commercial hub that allowed people from all along the indian ocean and connected each other through the exchange of ideas and culture and religion and actually shaped the indian ocean with its criss crossing sea routes connecting cultures and histories and, and geographies and more than that you know the changes that happened in the political and economic spheres and even the social and religious spheres of cochin and 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 the transition of cochin to what it is today is only because of the ocean that's that's indian ocean you know so next map yeah see this this actually shows the scope of cochin and malabar in the indian ocean trade now if if a fish goes to sea from cochin harbor well, he can actually move to many places he can go to surat he can go to cambay then mecca then southeast asian countries and, and africa and many more so if the fish is a ship you know this is the scope for cochin and the indian ocean one can move to many places and can have trade 
And you know, there are many travelogues and archival sources that says about the rich trade of Cochin during the 17th century and 18th century. You know, it, the port of Cochin has always been viewed as a, as a place where pepper and spices has been exported. You know, the port of Cochin actually had a very important role in the Indian Ocean. I will say about one traveler, one of the traveler actually, Tavernier, his name is Tavernier. He has actually written his travel in the 17th century. And, you know, he has actually penned on its rich trade in the Indian Ocean and, and its trade with the countries like Georgia and Poland and Hungary and Persia and many more. So the question here is, whether the Dutch had any particular interest in Cochin, whether the Dutch VOC, Dutch is in their company, they had any particular interest in, in Cochin. Uh, the Dutch actually conquered Cochin from Portuguese in 1663. And, and there are records and memoirs like, um, and, and records like memoirs and, and letters saying that Dutch is in their company considered the whole of Malabar, including Cochin as unprofitable and burdensome. And you know, the question is, why did they stay in Cochin for about 200 years, even though the place was unprofitable? Even after 1750s, when the companies were eclipsed, well, why did they stay in Cochin? So why didn't they leave Cochin? Why did they stay here for 200 years? Uh, and whether Cochin was actually burdensome or profitable? And I'm saying that, you know, a hold over Cochin was necessary for their expansion and their existence in the, in the whole Dutch East Indies. This is my argument. Uh, so I'll be saying about that first before coming to the major problems of my paper. Next slide, yeah. So first of all, as I have already told, more than a port, it was an entreport that connected several sea routes, making possible the intermingling of many regions, especially Arab region and Europe and Africa and Southeast Asia. So more than a port of uh, export and import, you know, merchandises were brought, then kept, then transshipped. This is what actually Sanjay Subramaniam, see the slide, this is what uh, Sanjay Subramaniam says of the importance of Cochin and its scope in the scope of trade in the Indian Ocean. You know, this whole paragraph actually says about the intermingling of uh, regions, trade and its scope and, 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 and all. So, you know, the existence of an entreport might have lured the Dutch. Um, uh, next slide, seventh. The next thing that lured the Dutch other than a, an entrepot might be, you know, pepper, the black gold. You know, Dutch, not just the Dutch, but almost all the European countries were behind this highly sought after thing in Malabar. That's black gold or pepper or Malabar pepper. Now, Malabar pepper was, you know, the most sought after produce and the best thing that produced in Asia. And, you know, the Dutch is in the company, they have called it as bride, bride. And pepper trade was actually considered as a bride around which everyone dances. This was actually said by, said by one of the uh, Dutch commander, Jacob Huster, who was the commander of uh, Cochin during the 1660s. He was the one who called you know, Malbar, pepper, Malbar pepper trade as a bride around which everyone dances. So, you know, they were behind this highly sort of thing or pressure, and they wanted to annihilate all the other European countries from the same pressure hunt for pepper. So next slide. Well, so other than an existence of, uh, other than the existence of a port or an entrepot and pepper, the other thing is a natural harbor. 
You know, this is an extract from the letters of Kandervisher, a Dutch chaplain who visited Malabar during the 17th century. So from this letter, the importance of Cochin, its natural harbor and safe harbor and, and strategy location is very evident, you know. So this is thing that another thing that uh, allure Dutch and and and, and uh, there was a stopover for ships in Cochin and and then you know this uh, the strategy location of Cochin it helped the VOC movements all across the Indian Ocean you know there was a bank of mud or bank mud bay uh, in front of the fort of Saint Andre in Cochin and you know this particular thing this uh, this mud bay actually made uh, the Cochin a bust harbor and it protected ships without any kind of motion or disturbances even during the time of monsoon. You know, this monsoon winds, it had, it had actually played a very important role in the trading and shipping in the Indian Ocean, you know. There were two monsoons, uh, the northeastern monsoon and the southwestern monsoon. The second one, the southwestern monsoon, you know, it actually brought to uh, Sri Lanka and India very heavy rains and made very difficult the shipping and trading in the Indian Ocean, no? But, you know, the strategic position and natural harbor and safe harbor of Cochin, it helped the VOC ships to have a safe anchorage and 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 and, and made possible the shipping and trading trading in the Indian Ocean even during the time of pilot monsoons. So this this one, you know, this uh, this slide actually this is the city of Cochin where there was a safe harbor that smoothened the Indian Ocean trade. Uh, 10th slide please. Well, uh, this is what Kandovishra again says in his letters about the speciality of Cochin in the protection of protection of Ceylon. So Cochin was always being viewed by the Dutch as a place for giving greater protection to the Dutch possessions in Ceylon, one of the Dutch major possessions, and, and it was headquarters of uh, Dutch before Batavia. So if the Portuguese had access to the possessions in Malabar, you know, it was possible to plan a counter-offensive. You see, Cochin as a staging area to reconquer Ceylon that was once owned by Portuguese and then seized from Portuguese by Dutch East India Company through their painstaking efforts uh, uh, between 1638 and 1658. So you now, next slide. Well, this particular table actually shows the prices of clothes from VOC's Asian factories from 1698 to 1711. So what I understood from this particular slide is that, you know, Malabar Coast and Cochin was always been an important region for the VOC as it complied with the mercantile interests, interests of the VOC and Dutch Republic. You know? you know, Cochin and the Malabar Coast actually fulfilled the commercial aspirations of the VOC. And, you know, the coast, uh, the coast of Malabar close, you know, both Kannur and Cochin, this is actually Malabar, Kannur is also in Malabar. So both, uh, you know, Malabar clouds, it actually maintained the consistency and it was popular than clouds of many other companies' possessions. And then going to the next slide, 12th one. Well, this actually says about the details of slaves that permitted to be transported from Dutch possessions after 1700. You know, in fact, slaves were needed for Dutch Empire expansion. And it's very clear from this table that Malabar had a very important role in the Dutch slave trade in the Indian Ocean. But you know, there was high demand for slaves in Dutch possessions, especially in Cape of Good Hope. And it was in this Cape of Cape Town that uh, the ships stopped for fuel and fresh, fresh water and vegetables and many more things. So 
slaves were necessary for the Dutch expansion. And Malabar Coast and Cochin was one of the most important settlement of VOC in the slave trade in the Indian Ocean, you know. And, well, next slide. Well, this actually deals with the pepper export details of company prior to 1663. And it's evident that company collected a good, good amount of pepper from this agent. I have already told about the pepper thing and bright thing and all. So, you know, uh, Dutch were actually anxious of a possible takeover of Malabar trade by the British that can harm their plans of a possible dominance in the whole European spice market. And it's very clear from all these evidences that Dutch had an exceptional interest in the possessions of Malabar, especially in Cochin, for various reasons like the existence of an port and the natural harbor, the stopover for ships, and the strategic location, and pepper, and spices, and slaves, and, and its role in the protection of Ceylon, and many more, you know. So I don't think that there exists any literature or arguments that Malabar and Cochin was troublesome is not that much, you know, it true because, you know, uh, the Cochin and Malabar was a necessary possession for the VOC for, for their overall existence in the Dutch East Indies. So, next slide, please. Well, coming to the major problems of my paper, I'm just raising some questions. You know, you know many of the historians actually pointed out the pure commercial nature of the Dutch company, like Om Pragash, who actually focused on the export and import details of the company. And, and then considered VOC as a, as a pure commercial enterprise. So my question is, uh, what was the Dutch colonial policy in, in Cochin? Was it purely commercial or, or motivated by empire building ambitions? Or how did the colonial policy did affect the political and economic structure of Cochin? Whether they were just a commercial company or they were aimed at removing the ruler? Or whether Dutch used treaties as a medium for their colonial, colonial policy to police in Cochin to extract the wealth of their possessions. So these are the questions that I'm raising in the third part of my, and the final part of my paper. So I'm using uh, treaties as a medium to ensure the colonial policy of Dutch in Cochin. Uh, next slide, please. Well, through these slides, I'm arguing that Dutch were actually following a coastal politics and then port politics in, in, in some of their possessions. Uh, you know, the British were actually focused on the mainland of India, but unlike British who focused on the mainland of India, extensively on the mainland of India, you know, whose ambitions were primarily connected with the Ember building, the Dutch had a very different, different strategy or different politics that was purely linked with trade. But I'm, I'm not saying that they haven't involved in the state-like activities or the, in the governmental aspects, but you know, Dutch actions were mostly focused on the coastal regions of India. See, see the slide, it's, it's actually very clear. You know, the major possessions of the company were scattered around the coastal regions like the Malabar coast and, and, and Coromandel coast in the south and Bengal and Surat in the north. So what I understood is that the company were mostly centered on coastal areas, let's say is the commercial interest of the company. So talking about the port politics of the company, you know, in Cochin, there was a custom actually in Cochin. When the members of Cochin royal family become hairless, they used to have take adoption from the Tawaris or from the uh, extended families. Tawaris means it's, it's, it's in Malayalam, it's a Malayalam language. It means the extended families. So my argument is that these adoptions to the Cochin realm were destined to involved after 1663. It should be studied along with the politics of the company. 
you know, after 1663, the Dutch even acted as the kingmakers of Cochin by uh, entering into the uh, the adoptions and successions. You know, they had a direct involvement in in, in these adoptions and successions and many more things. You know, so I'll take a treaty and explain. Next slide. Uh, well, I know this one. Okay, uh, I'll I'll explain it. This is actually, you know, the treaty that I'm saying about is actually a treaty that signed in 1718, actually uh, in January 10th. Uh, this is in Dutch language, you know, I have translated it. So the uh, this was actually signed between Alangad and Dutch East India Company. Alangad is actually a part of Cochin territory and he is the ally of Cochin Raja. So Dutch actually insisted or rather forced the rulers to make adoptions from Balwanad. You know, it, this is not a Tawari of Cochin. Walwanad is not a extended family of uh, Cochin, but Dutch actually insisted, or rather forced, uh, to take adoptions from Walwanad, uh, particularly from Arangot Surubam. This Arangot Surubam is actually situated next to Ponani, which has a port and a very important role in the Indian Ocean trade. So it's dubious whether the Dutch always preferred adoptions from regions which had a significant geographical position. You know, this place, Panan, it had a very significant position in the cross-cultural trade in the Indian Ocean. And, and even Dutch had built a factory there as per the terms of Treaty of 1608 that they have signed with Samarin, the ruler of Calicut. There is even an article of Mahmoud Kuria about Dutch Panani, which says about the importance of Panani in the Indian Ocean trade. And also what I want to say is, you know, in Cochin, the politics of company sometimes visible as the company provided protection and exclusive rights and gifts and sometimes they encouraged adoption. Sometimes they regulated those regions and rulers located next to the literal spaces of port and fort and waterways. Uh, you know, uh, so I am just going to the major major problems of my paper. Now, if I'm talking about the politics and diplomatic maneuvers of U.S. in Cochin, I will say that they were more attentive to trade in Malabar. Uh, you know, uh, these treaties of the period, it actually reveals the true agendas of the company, you know. They have actually intervened in the administrative affairs and it was more like a corporate mercantile company acting like a sovereign. You know, the true colonial policy of Dutch is very much evident from the volatile nature of the treaties that they have concluded with the local rulers of and, and local rulers of some of uh, their possessions in Southeast Asia and India. You know, the first few treaties in 1663, when the Dutch conquered the fort of Cochin, so the first few treaties uh, with the local rulers, you know, in most of their possessions in India and Southeast Asia and in Cochin, you know, it had a uniform structure. It had a uniform structure with some few words expecting mutual cooperation and understanding and attachment and, and, and many more things. But, you know, a closer examination of these treaties uh, will make us understand that they have been deceived quite often, you know. And the contradiction is that these treaties of mutual cooperation and friendship that hitherto mentioned in the previous treaties were absent in the later treaties. And it can be said that it was a deliberate shift from indirect diplomacy to direct domination. And it was very clear that through these treaties, the company intervened in the administrative affairs, throwing out Raja for many of his roles and rights. You know, Dutch 
tried to get involved in the state-like activities just after the siege of Cochin in 1663. So, because you know, the treaty signed immediately after the event shows that there have been entwined politics. There was an entwined politics of Dutch in Cochin, including commercial activities along with governmental aspects. So my argument is that Dutch in their company had an imperialistic nature. That means they have involved in state-like activities. They had governmental aspects to extract more benefits from Cochin, commercial benefits from Cochin. Like emporial, emporialism is a new term actually going to express the idea that it was, was uh, not more in territorial embers that the early European powers in Asia sought to create. It actually significant, signifies rather that you know markets, emporia were the targets of European seaborne indictees and not territories per se. Rather, any territory was acquired or uh, only in so far as it as it helped with the you know economic advantages to subserve the economic advantages. Uh, you know there are many instances and events and evidences to prove the emporialistic nature of the company in question. I will take a few treaties and explain this. Uh, well, this slide. This is actually a treaty signed on 28th March 1663 between Veera Kerala Maharaj of Cochin and, and you know, Ridgelow of Van Goens, uh, who was commander-in-chief of the naval force of EOC uh, in, in, during the 1660s. So now the third clause, this is actually the third clause, this is in Malayalam language, I have translated. This third clause actually sought for the same rights and privileges uh, the Portuguese had in the fort of Cochin and its dependencies such as then and So the question is, what were the rights and privileges that the Portuguese had in Cochin? Well, they actually had a visible dominance over Cochin. So taking over the Portuguese fortresses and indirectly Portuguese rights and power that they had acquired after a century was quite effortless and, and you know, along 663 years of Portuguese now is now equivalent to a single clause in the single treaty. So it's not wrong to say that uh, the Dutch were actually building a structure on the foundation actually built by the Portuguese state of India. You know, and after 1663, you know, they began uh, controlling adoptions and successions and punishments and, and they made new appointments and they minted coins in Cochin through the execution of treaties. And there are many evidences to prove that. You know, I mean, treaties, there are many treaties actually to prove this argument. Well, next slide, please. Well, uh, if we look at uh, the second half of 1670s, it is visible that the company began dominating the economic and political affairs of Cochin, being the decision maker and king maker and even when treaty maker. Um, the company can be identified as a treaty maker and, and Raja can be identified as a, Raja means king. Uh, he can be identified as a treaty taker because, you know, the treaties actually shows a strong inclination towards the Dutch, slide, Dutch side. See this slide. This is actually uh, a treaty concluded between Dutch and Cochin in 1679. And, you know, this particular uh, through this particular treaty, uh, the Dutch actually even fixed the salaries to be given to the ruler and princes of Cochin. Now, these are some, uh, there are some more insistent, uh, instances, you know, 
many more evidences you know uh, to show the visible dominance of batch over protein but i cannot share this uh, this time limit so what i understood uh, is that you know through these treaties which are almost like an intervention in the internal affairs of protein quality you know, that's always try to extract maximum commercial benefits from protein through this through these treaties that's why i'm saying that the company was not completely commercial in nature but was actually characterized by both governmental and and and, and commercial aspects because you know uh, uh through this uh, through this uh treaties you know company instructed or or, or rather forced the native coaching to supply the pepper and merchandises to only the company and and they even asked or forced for monopoly rights you know uh, uh you know all these treaties not not just one or two but you know almost all these treaties had majority clauses of commercial agreements that asked for monopoly rights over pepper and many more merchandises you know i will take some uh, some uh, clauses and explain this you know i'll read it in some of the treaties not just some, uh, very few but in almost all the treaties there were clauses like you know i'll read it a pepper that grows in cochin territory including purakkad and kranganu should not be permitted to get out of its limits but must be collected and weighed and delivered over to the company and it's agreed that none of it shall ever be delivered to any other nation so there were agreements like if any resident merchant of cochin makes any purchases from the company no char charges other than those allowed by custom shall be collected from him no fresh taxes must be demanded from the merchant trading with the company by the raj of cochin so you know not just one or two but uh, you know uh uh you know but uh, more than 50 more than 50 uh, treaties during the taken period of mine you know they uh, they had both uh, you know commercial and governmental aspects so you know the company had you know administrative and commercial aspects by which such a mechanism was followed to make the trade more effortless and to attain maximum commercial benefits and in cochin you know they had visible dominance over raj of cochin and and you know uh, the duchess in the company they very often through the treaties indirectly or diplomatically you know they controlled the political and economic spheres of uh, of the land of uh, cochin and, and they the raja you know he actually had to act as the puppet of the company you know uh, dutch has concluded a series of treaties in almost all their possession in india and cochin and malabar and southeast asia you know this can be seen as a medium of their existence and and their expansion in in southeast asia and cochin in southeast asia and india and cochin and you know and and you know but you know uh, uh, but one thing that uh, that that we should remember is that it's only because of the sea and port that the europeans came to cochin and it's only because of this that cochin was shaped to the form that is today uh, yeah oh that's all minu thank you so much for that presentation that was fantastic i really appreciate you coming on and talking about that i had a couple of questions on your method obviously you're talking about uh research and more importantly your archives and and using the the dutch records from the dutch east indies company what about indian records is there is there a lot in on indian sources about this yeah uh, there are there are sources there are you know actually i'm working on the malabar thing so there are many 
Malayalam records about the Dutch East India Company's money was. So in, in, in this research, so I have used some Malayalam critics. Uh, there are many Malayalam records, uh, mostly untouched by the historians. Uh, in the in the Arnaglam archives, you know, in the Cochin archives, I have seen many you know letters sent by the Rajas of Cochin to the to the to the Batavia and and many other you know many other records are there you know but uh, uh, and slave reports are there you know details of the slaves are there and in the in the in Madras archives also there are many Malayalam records. I was, re I was really interested in the slave portion because that was something that I was not aware of is the, is the role that the slave well, trade played going to India. Well, you know, there are many, many slave records in the, in the Chennai archives and there are 46 or 30 files, 46 or 50 files regarding the Dutch uh, slave trade in the Indian Ocean, you know. In, in, and from Malabar, so they have uh, transported many slaves, but they have, you know, uh, converted uh, the slaves to Christianity, and then they have transported them to Cape of Good Hope and and many of their possessions. You know. Uh, there are many more records in in the Cochin archives. I have I, I just remember, you know, I have come across a, a particular Malayalam uh, record about the slave trade and and and, and things. You know, and and. The fact is that you know uh, the Madras archives is more uh, that uh, you know slave trade reports and and, um, and you know many more uh, records are there. But you know most of the historians are not working on the Dutch slave trade thing. I don't know why they are not working actually. I haven't seen many uh, much uh, uh, you know researches about the slave trade. But you know there are many records in the Madras archives regarding the slave trade. And the thing is that uh, you know the uh, um, Rather than the export of slaves, there were import of slaves from uh, from Africa to Malabar. Uh, but no much work has been actually done so far about the slave trade, so I can't say much about that. But no, no, I, I, think, I think you're exactly. I think you're exactly right. The focus seems to be on the West African slave trade much more than East African, and I think I think that may be an element with that. I, I was really interested. When you lay out the geography, I'm a big geography guy, and I teach a course in world maritime history. And when I talk about India and, and do talk about the, the, the history of maritime India, it becomes very clear how maritime India really is. You know, two large river systems on its side, you know, with, with the Indian Ocean uh, playing such a, a significant role. And the, the concept of entrepôts and being established, that's something the Dutch do everywhere. New Amsterdam, Curaçao, St. Eustatius, and particularly over in India. And I think that's a very interesting aspect. You look at it, looking at that economic impact that it plays. And, and the treaties in particular are, are so interesting because they are an insight to how they view the Indian population and the Dutch. We've seen a lot of history written from the Dutch perspective. We don't see as much from the people that the, that the Dutch are making the treaties with. So I think your research is, is particularly interesting on that. What I really wanted to ask you is, is how you got interested in writing about this. This is a very unique topic and, and, and how you came about approaching this topic? Well, uh, you know, for me, this is very interesting for, you know, two reasons. You know, firstly, there are no much works about the Dutch treaties with the local rulers. But, you know, they have concluded treaties frequently with the rulers in India and Southeast Asia, you know. But no Dutch historians have actually worked on the treaties. I mean, the corpus diplomaticum of the company. But, you know, the treaties, it actually played a very crucial role in the commercial strategies of the company. We also even had a very definite plan of treaty making in their possession throughout Southeast Asia and India and in Kutsin and Malabar. But most of the historians just ignored, they just ignored uh, the uh, Dutch treaty, seeing it as a matter of 
uh, inequality or domination of a single cell. Nothing much. No, not just you know work. There is no even a single work about Dutch treaties. But I'm saying that you know Dutch actually very diplomatically they use treaties as a medium of their expansion and existence. There were no much wars just like the British. But you know Dutch were using these treaties as a medium of their uh, medium to extract maximum benefits. This is interesting because this is a new pers new perspective to the study of Cochin history. And the second thing that you know you know this particular study is almost like a new attempt in the historiography of Cochin. As I have already told, you know, there are no much works about the political uh, economy of Cochin during the 17th and 18th century. So, you know, this particular work, you know, uh, which has a very, you know, lot of empirical evidences, it will help to get to know more about the political and economical and religious and every aspects of the 17th and 18th century Cochin when the Dutch dominated this period. But through the status, uh, I have, you know, tried to get to know um, I mean, through the previous researches, I have tried to know about the nature of Cochin state, and I located in the Indian Ocean, and I tried to know about how the, uh, you know, uh, Indian Ocean maritime trade and and advent of Europeans and the internal issues together made changes in the political and economical spheres of Cochin. But you know, of late there have been a surge in uh, research works on early modern Malabar, but most of them were silent on Cochin, making the historic story of the Lakshina. And moreover, uh, the 17th and 18th century travelers they often constructed constructed Cochin, and and you know the bias was actually visible. And some of them even you know uh, saw this place as a uh, you know as a region where ships just entered, then just exited, then just entered, then just exited. And few of the travelers you know they observed Cochin uh, as a place where you know uh, you know they actually saw Euro, uh, Cochin as you know, uh, you know Europeans as the protectors of Cochin. So you know the early modern travelers as influenced their buyers, they you know often constructed Cochin in a way more suitable to them. So I am discussing through my research about the nature of the state of Cochin, which is almost like a new attempt into the Cochin's historiography. And I'm quite sure that this research can at least give a new insight about the early modern Cochin. These are the reasons that I'm, I'm, I'm into this particular study. I, I really enjoyed your your aspect on the multiculturalism aspect too. I, I think you know India is such a multicultural society anyway to begin with and then you add some Europeans into there and you just create a, a much more diverse multiculturalism aspect and I think not enough history is being done from other perspectives you know, as I said before we, we see a lot of histories being written from the Dutch perspective from the Dutch East Indies from the VOC but not a lot from the Indian perspective not a lot from the groups that are interacting with them and I think it's very I think you hit a very key point there the Dutch are businessmen. They like putting contracts out and treaties are really the next extension of that. And so I think you have a very good source to kind of look at with your studies. Well, I want to thank our guest, Minu Robaka, for joining us for our NASO video podcast. We hope to see her in Pensacola in 2021 to present further on her research. I can't wait to see where she goes with her research. Uh, if you like that broadcast, be sure to click like on YouTube or give it five stars on the podcast provider. Please subscribe to our channel to receive updates as we continue to interview maritime historians. You can follow NASO on Facebook or on Twitter at NASO underscore history. The best way to follow NASO is to become a member.
And as such, you receive our newsletter, our quarterly journal, Northern Mariner, which we publish jointly with the Canadian Nautical Research Society. We have discounts for graduate students and students currently enrolled so that they can become part of NASO. Please go to www.naso.org and click on membership to join. Until our next talk, keep sailing.